President Biden is vowing to respond to a drone strike in Jordan that killed three U.S. troops. It's Monday, January 29th. This is WBMAR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we'll hear from a National Security Council spokesman about the latest attack and how it plays into the widening conflict in the Middle East. Also, a new Broadway musical tells the story of a couple who are both alcoholics. The show is based on the 1962 movie Days of Wine and Roses. It's not a cautionary tale, not a morality play. There's no judgment here. We want the audience to lean in and watch these behaviors. And this hour, scientists are learning more about what causes some people to age more quickly than others and how to decelerate that process. If we could slow down the pace of aging just a little bit, we can give people a few more healthy years, a few more years to enjoy their life. Snow, rain, and wind today in the 30s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden says the U.S. will choose the manner and time to respond to the killings of three U.S. troops this weekend in Jordan. The U.S. blames militants backed by Iran. NPR's Tom Bowman says an explosive drone hit their barracks. Pentagon officials say the attack occurred in northeast Jordan, right up next to the border with Syria. It's a support base called Tower 22, and it looks like an attack drone hit a living quarters. So the U.S. is saying, again, three dead, and now we know 34 are wounded. I'm told many of them have traumatic traumatic brain injuries, uh, concussions. NPR's Tom Bowman reporting. It's not clear what President Biden will decide to do in retaliation. There is worry that the U.S. response could inflame and spread the war between Israel and Hamas. Republican critics of President Biden are demanding that the president attack targets inside of Iran. Testimony resumes today in a Michigan trial. It could set a precedent for whether parents can be held criminally responsible for the actions of their child. From member station WDET, Quinn Kleinfelter reports Jennifer Crumbly is being tried for involuntary manslaughter linked to her son's deadly shooting at his Michigan high school two years ago. Prosecutors accused Jennifer Crumbly and her husband of ignoring signs her son was troubled and instead buying him the gun he used to kill four classmates at Oxford High in November 2021. In court, computer crimes expert Edward Rogrowski testified the son texted a friend he was seeing things, but claimed his parents refused to take him to a doctor. Yeah, the hallucinations, that could have been warnings for seeing demons. Defense attorneys counter that Crumbly allegedly never saw the messages and had no idea her son was spiraling downward. Crumbly herself is expected to take the stand in the days ahead. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. Farmers in France are converging on Paris today. They're protesting prices, regulations, and other issues. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from Paris. Police are trying to prevent road closures. Interior Minister Gérard Darmanin says law enforcement is putting into place extensive security measures to prevent farmers from blocking Paris airports or its massive food market south of the city. Farmers say prices for produce are being kept down by supermarket chains. They're also angry about complex environmental regulations, the phasing out of a tax break on diesel fuel for farm equipment, and what they call unfair competition from free trade agreements negotiated between the EU and foreign nations like a pact with the Mercosur bloc of South American countries that's currently in the works. Farmers say the French government is not doing enough to address these problems. Eleanor Beardsley in Pierre News, Paris. On Wall Street, in pre-market trading, stock futures are mixed. Dow futures are down about 13 points. You're listening to NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Classes are canceled for a seventh day for public school students in Newton. The teachers union and school committee failed to come to a contract agreement yesterday. The sides are at odds over pay increases, social workers, and classroom aides. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. The union now faces a $50,000 fine for each day the strike continues. Marlboro officials are asking residents for help with an ongoing rodent issue. Paul Dinwoody is Marlboro's director of public health. He says the city now has a whole section on its website dedicated to tips on how people can prevent rats. The whole scope is how we can work together to prevent rodents. It goes into what rodents are looking for, whether that's food, water, and shelter. What is the health department and the city's roles? You know, we take the educational-based approach. Dinwiddie adds people can also report rat sightings on the website. He says that'll help the health department identify and address problem areas. A series of public meetings focused on redeveloping Davis Square and Somerville kick off today. City officials are looking for feedback from the public on the Davis Square commercial area plan. The plan focuses on outdoor dining, pedestrian safety, and support for small businesses. The plan was originally released in 2020, but is being changed because of impacts from the pandemic. A group in New Hampshire's North Country is trying to convince more of their neighbors to put solar panels on their homes and businesses. Mara Hoplamazian reports on what's called a Solarize campaign. People can get a free evaluation to see how solar could work for them. That's offered by Maine's Electric, based in Alton Bay. Organizers say the more people who go solar through the campaign, the more money everyone will save. Tiffany Miller-Graziano, one of the organizers, says the goal is to help people who have busy lives and competing priorities see how they can contribute to climate solutions. Having this kind of spotlight on this initiative and seeing it around town and seeing how other people are getting involved, too, I think that really helps motivate the movement forward. The Solarize campaign is hosting events through February, and the campaign ends March 31st. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. It's 7.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com slash wilderness. The Celtics are back home in the garden tonight to host the New England Pelicans. Tip-off is at 7.30. A mix of rain and snow to start the morning, as WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce explains, drivers should take extra caution during their morning commute. Still a little sloppy out there with areas of snow and rain and some mix in between. The back edge will come through late morning to midday, so additional snowfall coating to as much as an inch or two in a few spots. The wind will shift around and drag in some colder air tonight, so after temperatures in the 30s, this afternoon will drop into the 20s overnight, and we probably don't get out of the upper 20s tomorrow. There will be some moderation in temperatures by Wednesday and Thursday, back into the 30s to even some 40s by Thursday afternoon. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. President Biden blames groups linked to Iran for the weekend attack on U.S. troops. We've been reporting on this drone attack that killed three Americans and wounded more than 30 others. It happened at a U.S. base in a far corner of Jordan, one of several bases the United States quietly has throughout the Middle East. 
Iran supports militant groups throughout that same region and has been supportive of Hamas in its war against U.S. ally Israel. Robin Wright is following all of this. She's a distinguished fellow at the Wilson Center, a think tank that provides insights here in Washington. Robin, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Steve. And I'll just tell people, distinguished fellow is your title, but you're also quite distinguished. Uh, and I'm glad to have you on the program. Uh, let's talk about the the groups that Iran maintains or supports. We're not exactly sure who conducted this attack, but who's there and how are they connected to Iran, if at all? Well, Iran has what it calls an axis of resistance that includes several militias in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, and of course now in Yemen. Uh, many of them have targeted the United States and uh, and our allies. Uh, they've been involved uh, in Iraq with American forces who are there to deal with the remnants of the Islamic State. Uh, in Syria, they've been attacked 90 times by these Iranian-backed militias and mm. in Iraq, 60 times. And then you have the Houthis firing on a naval forces dozens of times now since November 19th in the Red Sea, a vital strategic waterway. And so I, we have uh, now a whole new front opening up in Jordan, and that's why this is such an important turning point. And I guess we should note this U.S. base was in a corner of Jordan near the border. It's near Iraq. It's near Syria. U.S. troops, of course, are in both of those countries uh, in different ways, and the, the bases work together. When you hear of one of these attacks, like the one over the weekend, do you assume that Iran directly ordered it? Not necessarily. Iran has armed, trained, in some cases actually created these militias. But many of them are now two generations old. They've been around since the 1980s. And Many of them are battle-hardened. Uh, those, Most of them have their own local agendas. They also want the Americans out. But Iran is clearly complicit in all of these actions because these groups would not be there if Iran hadn't supported them. The question is, has Iran actually ordered this one? Uh, there have been some back-channel communications between Washington and Tehran to say they don't want the war that has been playing out since October 7th between Israel and Gaza to expand. But frankly, I think we've crossed that threshold now. Um, well, well, let's talk about that from the Iranian perspective as well. You've just said the United States does not want the war to expand. Iran has said in the past that they don't want a regional war. Uh, do you think they are more in a posture of actually thinking it's in their interest to widen this conflict more and more? It may not be in their interest at the moment. There's a sense that both Iran and Hezbollah do, do not want a war or a bigger war at the moment, down the road, possibly. But Iran and Hezbollah and all the other militias, Qatai Hezbollah, which is based in Iraq, the Nujaba movement based in Iraq, but both of them operate in Syria as well, um, want the Americans out. They, you know, this has been a long time campaign. This has been true of Iran since its 1979 revolution. And it has, in many ways, spawned these groups in part to pressure the United States uh, and its allies to threaten Israel and to, to try to get the U.S. to withdraw some or all of its forces. I think you just said that you feel that we've passed the threshold from not having a regional war to more or less having one. We could discuss the exact definition, but I'd like to 
figure out what you think is happening. Is it possible that what is happening here is that each side, the United States and Iran, doesn't really want a wider war, but each side is pushed by its local actors, uh, pushed into a corner, felt that it feels that it needs to respond, and this is spinning out of control? I think the issue is momentum. And we've seen 10 different conflicts that have been playing out in the Middle East until October 7th. Uh, Israel faced uh, Hamas to the south, Hezbollah to the north. It faced um, the 16 Arab states across the region that have not recognized it and are still technically in a state of war. And then it had its shadow war with Iran. Uh, You had the Yemenis having a civil war, um, a regional war, and these wars are now intersecting um, with the Americans in Iraq and Syria as well. So the danger is that you see the Americans going in to try to prevent a wider war, to contain the violence, and instead only providing more targets. Robin Wright, an Iran expert at the Wilson Center, thanks as always for your insights. Thank you, Steve. A deal is said to be in the works to release Israeli hostages held by Hamas in Gaza in exchange for a pause in the fighting. The thing is, though, Israel says there are still differences between the sides on what the deal should look like nearly four months into the war, and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza keeps getting worse. And now the U.S. and other countries are suspending their funding to the U.N.'s main humanitarian agency in Gaza. NPR's Daniel Lestrin is following all of this from Tel Aviv. Hi there, Daniel. Good morning, Steve. How does it even work when they're trying to figure out some kind of agreement between Israel and Hamas? Well, the CIA chief is involved, William Burns, also Israel's top intel chiefs, top officials from Qatar and Egypt, who are the the main mediators between Israel and Hamas. They all have been meeting in Paris. And an Egyptian source with direct knowledge of the talk spoke to NPR. They're trying to strike a deal for a prolonged pause in fighting and to exchange Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. This would be similar to an exchange in late November where about half of the Israeli hostages were released in exchange for Palestinian detainees. And this deal is going to be done, uh, if it does come through, it would be done in phases over several months. And then in parallel, there are other talks about trying to allow Palestinians who fled their homes to return to North Gaza, talks about the future Palestinian leadership as well. But the main sticking point here, Steve, is is about the end of the war. Hamas wants this deal to lead to the end of the war. And Israel is okay with a significant pause in fighting, but not the permanent end in fighting. And you have to understand the the domestic politics in Israel. Israel's leadership is under a lot of pressure from its hard right flank. Senior ministers even took part in an event yesterday for resettling Gazans outside Gaza and moving Israeli settlers into Gaza. And there have been Israeli activists blocking aid trucks to Gaza in recent days. So it just shows these hardline domestic pressure on the Israeli government about Gaza. But the government in Israel says these talks were constructive so far, still significant gaps and more talks to be held this week. With all that, I'm listening closely to what you're saying. The last pause in fighting was a few days, but you're saying prolonged, several months. This could be a big deal, even if it's not a formal end to the war. That's right. And then there's this whole other crisis, which is the United Nations Humanitarian Agency. Israel has presented evidence that 12 Palestinian employees for the UN in Gaza were directly involved in the Hamas attack that started this whole war on October 7th. Mm. And so the US, the UK, other countries have suspended aid to that agency. The UN has fired staff who faced 
those allegations. But now the U.N. is calling for uh, countries like the U.S. to renew the funding to the U.N. We're talking about the U.N. agency that provides services for most Gazans now who are in desperate need of, of food and shelter. These are allegations Israel had against 12 employees out of the 13,000 who work for the U.N. in Gaza. The odds are, I think, that the U.S. will resume funding to this agency. How much worse are things getting in Gaza? There is heavy fighting in the city of Khan Yunus, near two main hospitals there. Doctors Without Borders says one of the hospitals is now nearly unable to perform surgeries. We spoke with Nibel Farsakh, a spokeswoman of the Palestine Red Crescent Society, a main medical organization. Uh, we spoke about another hospital in the area, Al-Amal Hospital. The situation there is catastrophic. There is ongoing bombardments that is happening day and night, along with gunfire. The medical teams are working in horrific and dangerous conditions. And the Israeli military has called on Palestinians to evacuate this area, but we're seeing more and more Palestinians evacuate further south, just adding to the masses of displaced people in this last sliver of territory in Gaza that uh, Israeli troops have not invaded. NPR's Daniel Estrin, thanks so much. You're welcome. The New York Public Library recently got a donation. It's Abraham Lincoln memorabilia. The collection includes letters, campaign souvenirs. There's even a Lincoln-themed cabinet for storing pies in a strand of the 16th president's hair. Steve, this sounds like your jam. <laughs> Absolutely. Wonder what we can learn from the hair. All of this came from the family of Jonathan Mann, who was a collector who died last August. Brent Reedy leads the library's research wing. He wanted this collection to be used by the public and not end up dispersed to a thousand corners. He spent so much time bringing it together. It was a work of art unto itself. Julie Golia, a historian and curator at the library, said Mann's collection of political campaign ribbons tells us a lot about the era. When you think about it, they're a fundamental part of people's experience at the time. If you would have walked around New York in 1860, people would have been wearing the ribbons on their shirt. They're intimate. And they bring you back to the time in a way that words or descriptions can't necessarily. Her favorite ribbon is from the Wide Awake Girls, who campaigned for Lincoln in 1860. It really struck me that there were so many women participating in the Wide Awakes a half a century before women got the vote. The Wide Awakes, these were pro Lincoln groups in 1860 who were woke to the danger of the country. Golia thinks that pieces like these will inspire future Lincoln researchers. When the collection opens after it's processed, we'll bring a whole new generation of Lincoln scholars and enthusiasts to the New York Public Library. So I'll be booking a train soon. <laughs> This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that President Biden is vowing to respond after an attack on a base in Jordan killed three U.S. soldiers. Also, House Republicans are seeking to impeach the Homeland Security chief. And in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the U.N. is asking countries to consider restoring funding to the Relief Agency for Palestinian Refugees after support was pulled amid allegations that a dozen staff members participated in the October 7th Hamas attacks. It's 719. 
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Hundreds of books have been removed from Texas schools and libraries in recent years. So one public school teacher created an underground library of banned titles. She tells like a select few of students who she feels might need a book to get them into reading. Hear more from this teacher and her students on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. There's a chance of a mix of snow and rain through mid-afternoon. It could bring an inch or two of snow in some spots, otherwise cloudy and windy today with highs in the upper 30s. Tonight, mostly cloudy and a low around 20 with a slight chance of more snow. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and a high only in the upper 20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Join us on Thursday, February 8th at City Space for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Norris. She'll be talking about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Sometimes the most intriguing musicals come from the most unlikely sources. A new Broadway show based on the 1962 film Days of Wine and Roses opened last night. The movie is about a young couple played by Lee Remick and Jack Lemmon struggling with alcoholism. I'm a drunk and I don't do my job and I get fired and I can't get a job now and I... We should have done this a long time ago, taken a look at ourselves and realized we just turned into a couple of bums. So can a story about addiction and recovery sing? As reporter Jeff London discovered, it can. When the audience meets Joe Clay, a glad-handing public relations man played by Brian Darcy James, and Kirsten Arneson, a bookish secretary played by Kelly O'Hara, they see them falling in love with each other and with drinking. Two people stranded at sea, two people stranded are we, are we. Sometimes I feel like I'm a dozer in the desert With all this water everywhere With all this water everywhere It's a love story first and foremost. Composer-lyricist Adam Gettle has written the show's score. Days of Wonder Roses is not a cautionary tale, not a morality play. There's no judgment here. We want the audience to lean in and watch these behaviors. In this song, the couple is moved in together, and between each verse, Joe pulls out a different bottle of booze from a paper bag, showing both the passage of time and how alcohol helps to fuel their relationship. You got your bubbly, your Cointreau, your lime, 
Director Michael Greif marvels at the economy that Gettle and scriptwriter Craig Lucas bring in telling the story, this song in particular. It's so unbelievably clever of Craig the way he introduces, you know, that third person into the relationship. I did invite someone to join us, and, you know, and that someone's in a bottle. Actor Brian Darcy James says he likes the way the show offers a series of snapshots from the life of its two central characters. One moment you discover they've married, another moment you discover they have a child, another that drinking has cost Joe his job. There is this sense of kind of jumping from one moment to the next and just kind of stepping in to see how their lives are devolving or evolving. It took a long time for Days of Wine and Roses to evolve as a musical. Twenty years ago, Gettle, Lucas, and Kelly O'Hara collaborated on an early workshop of another show, The Light in the Piazza. At one point, she suggested to Gettle that Days of Wine and Roses might make an interesting musical. I didn't know that he went and got the rights, and he started thinking about it. And about ten years later, I sang the first song from it. O'Hara sings 14 of the show's 18 songs, showing off not just her vocal range, but her acting ability, especially as the story gets darker. In this song, Joe is trying to quit drinking, but Kirsten doesn't want to. Adam Gettle and Craig Lucas have spoken publicly about their own struggles with addiction. Both are now sober, but Lucas says, It's hard to watch the show at times because of my lived experience, but it's also a great privilege because I know we're not lying. This show may only be about a hundred minutes long, but it's dense and complex. Adam Gettle says his heightened poetic score is balanced by Craig Lucas's grounded script. The naturalism of what he's done and the fairly free-handed sort of metaphoricalism of what I'm doing, that's what's new about this thing. There is a man who loves you as the water loves the stone. Lucas and Gettle have kept the film's time period, the late 1950s, early 60s. That's when Craig Lucas was a child, and heavy social drinking was very much part of his family's culture. My parents went out to parties seven days a week. And my grandmother stayed with me because my parents were falling down and breaking bones and crashing cars. So one of the biggest changes Lucas brought to the adaptation is building up the character of the young daughter, who barely appears in the film. Be there as soon as I can. 
Often with children of alcoholics, the child becomes the parent. They step up, they hold the family together, they know somebody has to do it, and they're there. And they're not about to see the family get broken apart. So for me, there's tremendous hope. If you've seen the film, you're aware that Joe and Kirsten's path to recovery is not linear, and questions remain. Will the sober one relapse? Will the other one find sobriety? Everyone involved in Days of Wine and Roses is keenly aware that this show is not for all audiences, given its unflinching portrayal of addiction. But Kelly O'Hara says, I get people every single night who either say something like, Thank you so much. I'm eight years sober this year. Or, I don't get this show, it's really depressing. I get that a lot, which is very telling. You know, it's an interesting, uncomfortable lens. And that's just fine with Craig Lucas. For me, art is a risk. It has to be. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR and for listening every day. The latest news is at the top of the every hour, and today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we preview Super Bowl 58. It'll pit the Kansas City Chiefs against the San Francisco 49ers. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A House committee is expected to vote this week on articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Republicans on the House Committee on Homeland Security accuse Mayorkas of willfully disregarding immigration laws amid record numbers of migrant encounters at the U.S. southern border. Democratic lawmakers on the committee are dismissing the articles of impeachment as a sham. Iran's foreign ministry denies Tehran played a role in a deadly weekend drone strike in Jordan. It left three U.S. service members dead and wounded more than 30 others. NPR's Jane Arath in Amman says an Iranian-backed group is claiming responsibility for the attack. President Biden has made clear that he blames Iran-backed groups, despite that denial, and he says the U.S. will retaliate. That's the dilemma. Since the Gaza war started in October, there have been fears that this could flare into a wider regional war if Iran is brought into it, and that's potentially what we're looking at. Military analysts expect the Pentagon to retaliate directly on Iranian forces in the region. The Israeli government says talks will continue this week with the U.S., Qatar, and Egypt toward reaching a ceasefire agreement with Hamas in Gaza. 
Israel says significant gaps remain following talks thus far. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Commuting on the MBTA's Green Line is expected to be back to normal this morning. That follows months of slowdowns and closures to fix issues with the tracks. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports. This is the first day in weeks that Green Line trains will be running between North Station and Kenmore Square. That's also true for the B branch of the Green Line between Kenmore and Babcock Street and for the E branch between Copley and Heath Street. Trains will also be running on the Green Line extension after a series of nighttime and weekend closures. That was needed to replace more than eight miles of track that were originally laid too close together. T-General Manager Phil Eng referred to the shutdowns as short-term pain for long-term wins. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Historical markers celebrating the founding of Massachusetts Bay Colony in Concord are now gone. Town officials removed the nearly century-old signs because they were insensitive to indigenous communities. They tell the Boston Herald the markers were, quote, problematic and antithetical to Concord's goals for inclusivity. The signs were originally installed in the 1930s to mark the 300th anniversary of the colony's founding. Worcester police are warning the public about a recent increase in car thefts. Law enforcement say thieves are especially targeting cars made by Kia and Hyundai. More than three dozen of those types of cars were stolen in the city over the past three months. Police connect the thefts to a social media challenge, which highlights the car's apparent security issues. It's 733. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. The Celtics will take on the New Orleans Pelicans at the Garden tonight. Their game starts at 7.30. A chance of snow and rain through mid-afternoon today, otherwise cloudy and windy with highs in the upper 30s. Tonight it falls to around 20 and remains mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. High temperatures will only be in the upper 20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. You're WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Among many officials who are worried about this year's election is the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, has three big concerns. Foreign powers who want to attack American democracy, the Americans who deny election results, and all the new tools that make it easy to sow doubt, such as artificial intelligence that can fake a candidate's voice and image. He wants the Biden administration to do a lot more than it's doing to counter all this. When I spoke to Senator Warner, I asked how confident he is that the election will be safe and secure. Well, hey, I wish I could say I was confident, but we may be 
headed for the perfect storm in terms of election interference. And let me give you quickly a couple reasons. One, Russia with its war in Ukraine, Iran with its challenges in the Middle East, they have a higher interest than ever in interfering in American elections. Two, we know in America you've got folks who are election deniers still trying to relitigate 2020. Third thing is uh, there is a court case that came out of Texas that basically is constraining the government from even having voluntary conversations with the social media firms. That was something that came out of the 2016 election, but there was a case that basically tries to hold off that communication, which is very troubling. That Texas case, is that the one where you filed the amicus brief urging the Supreme Court to reverse that injunction? Okay. Yes. I'm trying to say that this does not go to, I don't believe, to issues of free speech. It does go to the ability of the government to be able to at least talk to Facebook and Google to say, hey, if you see misinformation, disinformation, or can we share evidence of Russian activity, how do we cooperate together? Okay, so I was wondering about that because that injunction appears to have an exception for that purpose. So uh, what am I missing on that? What you're missing is, I think, a very timid Biden administration. You've got CISA, the cybersecurity information agency that, um, frankly, did a great job in 2020, actually even under President Trump, that's holding back. You've got the FBI, which investigates most of the counterintelligence efforts in the country, holding off. So this is a, a concern. I'm trying to push the Biden administration to be a little more aggressive, but I can rest assured that there is not the level of communication that existed in 2020 or 2022 or 2018. Which of the threats that you mentioned is the one that concerns you the most? Well, you take an aggressive Russia, sometimes not just spreading disinformation, but amplifying many times American disinformation. You think about that being used sometimes with AI tools that can do this disinformation at scale and speed that's unprecedented. And we're seeing this with public figures already. There's been some deep fakes using President Trump's voice and image. There's been some deep fakes recently, inappropriate photos that were not real of Taylor Swift. You know, these tools are out there. You mentioned how you want the Biden administration to be more aggressive. What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like taking advantage of the exemption that was in that case to say, no, we can have regular communications with the social media companies. Because my fear is, If they wait until the Supreme Court, a lot of mischief could be done. I also think we got through 2020 because we were relatively well protected. I just worry the public focus isn't as high right now. And the fact that we got through 2022, but 2024 with these new AI tools and the fact that the war in Ukraine elevates Russia's interest in determining or trying to drive the outcome of the elections in the United States. This is a recipe potentially for real problem. But having the FBI or other government agencies be in contact with social media companies, are we treading close to a First Amendment uh, violation there? I think when you're talking about true misinformation or disinformation, or when you're talking about utilization of deep fakes where an image of A. Martinez or Mark Warner is put up and it's not us, but it looks like us and sounds like us. I don't think those are First Amendment protections. I think those are, frankly, just malicious, the kind of manipulation that we've already banned from things like public trading in the stock market. The same rules ought to be applicable. So, Senator, what would a a failure to address those election integrity issues, what, what might that mean for our democracy? You could have a chaos. It could change the results. With advancing technology, if we don't take this as a serious threat to our democracy 
And you know, we've got lots of Americans who think 2024, and I'm one of them, think is one of the most important elections in our country's history in terms of protection of our democracy. We could come out of this at the other end in a very bad spot. That's Democratic Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. He's also the chairman on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Senator, thanks. Thank you, A. The first official Democratic primary of 2024 is Saturday in South Carolina. President Biden spent the weekend in the state working to woo black voters. As NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid reports, Democrats see the state as a springboard for Biden's re-election bid. It was a weekend of retail politics, and Biden's first stop was a barbershop. I'm taking more of these than anybody in <laughs> He was snapping selfies and shaking hands. And then it was on to the South Carolina Democratic Party dinner. This is the first year South Carolina will go first. Biden himself pushed for this change to move the state ahead of Iowa and New Hampshire. I wouldn't be here without the Democratic voters of South Carolina, and that's a fact. Four years ago, Biden's campaign was struggling. He came to South Carolina having lost the three prior races. He needed a big win, and the black voters of South Carolina delivered it to him. You're the reason Donald Trump is a loser. And you're the reason we're going to win and beat him again. This trip was about saying thanks and reminding voters what he's done. It was here in South Carolina that I promised to appoint the first black woman to the United States Supreme Court. Biden ran through a list of policy accomplishments and the crowd cheered with him. Promises made and promises kept. The next morning, the president went to church. Thanks for bringing me home. Biden was brief, speaking of love and light and the power of the black church. You push us toward a more perfect union, you really do. The Biden campaign's focus on South Carolina is not solely about the upcoming primary. It's an uncompetitive race, and there's little chance a Democratic presidential candidate will win the state in a general election. But it's being watched closely as a test of black voter support for Biden. Terrence Woodbury has some reservations. He leads Hit Strategies. It's a group that researches black voter attitudes. I think that there is going to be overanalyzation of South Carolina, mainly because the voters that Democrats need to mobilize in the general election are participating in the primary election. Those less frequent disengaged voters, they don't really show up in primaries. But still, he says the results might indicate whether Biden's message is resonating with voters. And that could be key as the Biden campaign looks to the November election and aims to win battleground states with big black voting blocks like Georgia and North Carolina. Asma Khalid, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, a growing body of research shows that many school shooters were also victims of severe bullying. We'll look at what that means for preventing and prosecuting mass shootings. Cloudy and windy today in the upper 30s. There's a chance of snow and rain through mid-afternoon. Temperatures fall to around 20 tonight, and it'll be mostly cloudy. Skies stay mostly overcast tomorrow. It'll only be in the upper 20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. 
tourism in Massachusetts has been on the rise in recent years. A new study finds that it had a $1.3 billion impact in the western part of the state in 2022. More now from Adam Frenier. The study was commissioned by the Greater Springfield Convention and Visitors Bureau and examined Hamden, Hampshire, and Franklin counties. It found 4 million visitors came to the area in 2022, the majority from the Boston and New York City areas. They spent more than $800 million directly while also contributing to tax revenues for local communities and the state. Mary Kay Wydra is the president of the Bureau. She says this is a sign tourism has bounced back since the pandemic. Leisure travel and sports groups kind of pulled us out of the impacts we had from the pandemic. Uh, Conventions and meetings, though, have started coming back strong, too. Wydra says the information will be used to better inform the Bureau's marketing efforts. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. The former site of John Harvard's brewery and alehouse will soon become a first-of-its-kind space in Cambridge. DX will be a rentable space for events, parties, and conferences. The creators of DX say they want to provide smaller spaces for people to rent for events in Harvard Square. They tell the Cambridge Day the venue is expected to open next month. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. Kansas City is heading to the Super Bowl again. The Chiefs are now one of only three teams to make it to the Super Bowl four times in the span of just five years. They'll face off against the San Francisco 49ers on Sunday, February 11th. Jesse Washington is senior writer for ESPN's Anscape. He joins us now. Jesse, I, I know Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey. I know they're good. I know this, Jesse. But my goodness, I mean, they're, they've, been, they've been really good for a long time. Man, just another example of why Patrick Mahomes might be the best that we've ever seen do it at the quarterback position. Kelsey passing the great Jerry Rice, the 49er Jerry Rice, for most uh, postseason catches. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. What is it about this team, Jesse, that just keeps them so dominant for so long? Oh, it's simple. It's Patrick Mahomes. Okay. I mean, let's, <laughs> let's not get, get confused here. The guy makes every throw. The guy... Every time you need a big run, he's going to give it to you. Just playing mistake-free football. You know, this year we thought that the MVP of the league was the Ravens quarterback, Lamar Jackson, and he played great this season. But on Sunday, not so much. You know, um, he he had a bunch of crucial overthrows when they're trying to come back and tie the score. Had a pretty much a bad throw into the end zone that ended an, inter- in an interception that, that pretty much extinguished the Ravens' hopes. That is what... Patrick Mahomes never does 
that's why they're going to the Super Bowl. Yeah, for uh, Lamar Jackson, I mean, was it just a, a bad game? Or, I mean, because because as you said it, I mean, he's just the MVP possibly of the National Football League. They had one of the highest scoring offenses in the league, and then it just like they completely tanked. He did have a very bad game, you know, and it's too bad because there's a narrative around Lamar that that's followed him ever since he came to the league that he's not a real quarterback and all this kind of stuff. And he is. He just didn't play well. But let's not all put it on him. You know, the rest of Baltimore really sort of wilted under the spotlight, too. Three turn turnovers, drop fumbles, eight penalties, just bad penalties at bad situations. Um, they almost got back in the game. Lamar threw a bomb to Zay Flowers, and he runs it down to the 10-yard line. But then when he gets up, he taunts the cornerback that he caught it over, Legereus Sneed. Then Flowers has a chance to redeem himself, and is going for the end zone, and the guy he taunted punches the ball out. Chiefs recover in the end zone. That was pretty much it. All right. In the other conference, the NFC, the 49ers overcame a big deficit at halftime to reach their first Super Bowl in uh, their second Super Bowl in five years. Uh, 49ers have a quarterback named Brock Purdy, Jesse. He was the last pick in the NFL draft just a couple of years ago, and now he could be a Super Bowl champion. Man, Brock was balling. Put some respect on that man's name. You know, he was running, he was throwing, and, uh, the Niners scored on all five of their first possessions in the second half, ran off 27 unanswered. I mean, at halftime, it looked like it, Detroit was going to their first Super Bowl ever. It looked like they would win their first road playoff game since 1957, but it was not to be. All right, Chiefs-Niners, Super Bowl 54 rematch. The Chiefs won that game. Who wins this time around? Oh, man, I knew you were going to do <laughs> it's this. It's early, this Jesse. I know. There's a lot could happen between now and th two This ain't fair. Now, I do remember that the last time we spoke, I, I, I went against Detroit, and, and my mom reminded me that I got that wrong. So the pressure is on, and how can you bet against Patrick Mahomes? It's just it's, hard yeah. to do. You know, uh, the Niners got a lot of weapons. The Chiefs have a great defense this year that, that doesn't really give up more than seven points in the second half. So... Jeez. I got to go with Patrick Jeez. Mahomes. All right, Jesse Washington, senior writer for ESPN's Anscape. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. It's a Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 820 here on Morning Edition, residents in vulnerable areas of coastal Maine are considering how to deal with the threat of rising water after three storms in a month devastated several communities. It's 749. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org slash legacy. Hundreds of books have been removed from Texas schools and libraries in recent years. So one teacher created an underground library of banned books. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. President Biden says the U.S. will respond after a drone attack killed three U.S. soldiers at a base in Jordan. A Republican-led House committee is releasing draft articles of impeachment against the Homeland Security Secretary. And Massachusetts students at public schools in Newton are out of school for a seventh day as the teacher strike there continues. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. 
WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. Upper 30s and overcast today. There's a chance of a mix of rain and snow through mid-afternoon. Mostly cloudy and low 20s tonight. Tomorrow, the clouds stick around and it'll only be in the upper 20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. The concept of average life expectancy is not new, but scientists can now actually estimate your personal rate of aging to gauge whether you're aging more quickly or slowly than your peers. Today, NPR is starting a new project, How to Thrive as You Age. And Allison Aubrey kicks it off with a visit to a longevity lab. Are you ready for this? I am not sure. Should I be doing this? I think you should. I think you'll find it interesting and... Um, Maybe insightful for what your future might be about. Oh, my gosh. What are you doing there, Allison? Allison's joining us now. <laughs> and you sound kind of hesitant. What is happening? Good morning, Layla. Well, we all age at different rates. And Dr. Doug Vaughn, who you just heard there, leads the Human Longevity Lab at Northwestern University in Chicago, where they can measure your rate of aging. Are you a superager, more likely to live to 100 or beyond? an average ager, or is your aging accelerated? Now, to figure this out, they put you through a whole bunch of tests. One of them is called the Grim Age Test. Okay, well, that doesn't sound very good. Can they call it something else? (laughs) It actually gives you a prediction or indicator of your biological age. So we all know our chronological age. That's the date on your birth certificate. But our biological age is a gauge of how well your cells, your DNA, are holding up well, your muscles and cardiovascular system are holding up. Okay, so now I understand why you're nervous. If you get bad news, you're aging fast. Uh, Is there anything you can do? And and are you aging? What is your, are you a super ager? (laughs) Well, we'll find out. I mean, some of this is definitely beyond our control, right? But let me give you an example of information that can be helpful. One of the tests I did was in a device called a bod pod. It's a capsule. It looks like a little marine submersible that you got to climb into. And I started to feel claustrophobic the moment the medical assistant, Jessica Garcia, opened the door. Before you jump in, let me point out that blue button to the side there that stops the test if you wish to for whatever reason. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. See the Titanic hit that button. Yeah. <laughs> So over the course of a few minutes, the bod pod measures your body composition, gives you a ratio of body fat to lean mass, including muscle. And the reason it's helpful to know about muscle mass is that as we age, we all start to lose muscle as early as age 30. It happens at different rates. So maintaining strength is really key. It's a key way to prevent the risk of falls, which is the top cause of death from injury for older people. And so this test tells you how you stack up. Okay, so once you go into the bod pod and you get all this information, what do you do with that information? Well, in the case of, say, what you learn in the bod pod, if you need to build muscle, you can do resistance training. That is the key thing. You can make some changes to your diet. And this is actually the big goal of the longevity lab. The idea is that if they gather this baseline data on body composition, strength, cardiovascular function, biological age on a whole bunch of people, then they can run tests, clinical studies, to figure out which things may slow down aging. It's a health span prolongation lab. We want to push back the onset of aging-related disease. That's our fundamental goal. 
And Dr. Vaughn and a lot of other researchers in this space are optimistic that by targeting the basic biology of aging, they can eventually figure out how to prevent or really delay some of the common diseases that accelerate as we age, diabetes, heart disease, and many more. Okay, so how do they plan to do that? Well, they're recruiting a mix of people of different ages, ethnic backgrounds, incomes, people who live in low-income neighborhoods. They'll get baseline measurements to gauge their rate of aging using these biomarkers and these tests. Then they will test interventions that have the potential to slow it down. One population Dr. Vaughn plans to study are people with chronic HIV who tend to age at an accelerated pace, and he wants to test a bunch of different things. It might be weight training, it might be intermittent fasting, it might be uh, dietary manipulations, it might be drugs that are available now that might have anti-aging effects like metformin or even Ozempic. But we want to see if we can't actually slow down the pace of aging. Now, in recent years, life expectancy has dipped in the U.S., but not for everyone, Layla. Life expectancy is very much influenced by where we live. The Longevity Lab is in an upscale neighborhood near fine dining, gyms, expensive apartments. People in this high-income neighborhood can expect to live a much longer life compared to people who live just a few miles away. I'm worried about the poor soul in South Chicago who's got a life expectancy of 55 compared to 92 in the neighborhood that we're standing in right now. Allison, that's more than a 30-year difference just based on where you live. Yeah, it's it's stunning. And a lot of factors play into this. I mean, poverty, housing, crime, stress, all of these can shorten lifespan and lead to diseases earlier in life. And these societal issues are very challenging to address. But Dr. Vaughn says the goal of researchers is to figure out ways to intervene early. We know that aging is the most important risk factor for every disease that we deal with in adult human beings. And if we could slow down the pace of aging just a little bit, we can give people a few more healthy years, a few more years to enjoy their life, push back the onset of the heart disease or cancer or whatever it might be. And that's for everybody. That's not for the 1%. Okay. So I think my first question is now my last question. What did you learn personally, Allison, at the Longevity Lab? Well, I learned I need to be focused on building muscle, on building strength. And stress is something I need to work on, too, that may be working against longevity. We have the tools now to be able to answer that question, to stress drive an acceleration in your biological age? Maybe that's part of the reason for the discrepancy in the life expectancy in different neighborhoods of Chicago, different yeah. kinds of stresses. We could, we could bring people in and we could measure their biological age at baseline and then have them do a de-stressing protocol, meditation, yoga as a way to slow aging, but let's do the measures. Eventually, Dr. Vaughn says, with all of the research going on into healthy aging, he's optimistic that there will be breakthroughs to kind of move us towards preventing or delaying the onset of many age-related diseases. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to more of your reporting. NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, Layla. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin. I'm Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. 
There's a chance of rain and snow through mid-afternoon today, otherwise overcast and windy. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. Those fall to around 20 tonight, and it'll be mostly cloudy. Still mostly cloudy tomorrow. It'll only be in the upper 20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. Here and now, executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Joe Biden says the U.S. will respond after strikes by Iranian-backed militias killed three American soldiers in Jordan. It's Monday, January 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a Republican-led House committee releases draft articles of impeachment against the Homeland Security Secretary. Also this hour. I've seen statistics that 70% or so of students experience peer harassment, but very few of them will commit a rampage attack. Exploring the link between bullying and school shootings. Plus, climate mitigation measures take on new urgency in Maine. I can't wait till 2025 or 26 or 27. It has to be 2024, like tomorrow, or we're gone. Cloudy with snow, rain, and wind possible today in the 30s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Republicans have released draft articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports the move comes as Republicans continue to criticize the Biden administration over record high immigration at the southern border last year. The House Committee on Homeland Security accuses Mayorkas in its 20-page resolution of high crimes and misdemeanors, including willfully disregarding immigration law. Chairman Mark Green, a Republican from Tennessee, says the committee must, quote, exercise its constitutional duty and impeach Mayorkas. Republicans have blamed him for record numbers of arrivals at the U.S.-Mexico border last year, around 2.5 million migrants, according to federal data. The Department of Homeland Security responded in a memo calling the effort a distraction and saying Republicans are pursuing impeachment for political gain. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. President Biden campaigned this weekend in South Carolina. During a stop at a Baptist church, he asked for a moment of silence for the three U.S. service members killed by a drone attack in Jordan. The Pentagon says 34 other U.S. troops were injured. NPR's Tamara Keith reports it's the latest attack by Iran-backed militants since the war between Israel and Hamas began last October. Biden was at a campaign stop at Brooklyn Baptist Church in West Columbia, South Carolina, when he paused to reflect on the loss of life. It's a bit tough to hear. We lost three brave souls. He asked for a moment of silence, and then when it was over, added, and we shall respond. The Iran-backed Islamic resistance in Iraq is claiming credit. Some Republicans are blaming Biden's Middle East policy for the attack and say the U.S. response must send a signal to Iran that this isn't acceptable. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Meanwhile, the U.S. faces other Mideast threats. 
Militants in Yemen, also backed by Iran, are firing on commercial shipping and U.S. warships in the Red Sea. Separately, diplomats from Iran and Pakistan are trying to mend relations after tit-for-tat air attacks on each other's territory this month. Iran's foreign minister is in Pakistan's capital for talks, and Pakistan's foreign minister, Jalil Abbas Jalani, says his country and Iran have agreed to work closely to stop attacks by militant groups. Pakistan and Iran have agreed to adopt collective and collaborative approaches to confront this menace by fully leveraging the robust institutional mechanisms which already exist between our two countries. The two neighboring countries have had trouble in their relationship. There's been concern violence between them would inflame the conflict in the Middle East. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Public school students in Newton are out of school for a seventh day today. The teachers' union and school officials couldn't come to an agreement on a contract yesterday. Teachers are striking over pay increases, social workers, and teachers' aides. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. The union has already been fined $375,000 for continuing its strike. City councilors in Cambridge are scheduled to consider a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. In neighboring Somerville, officials say they're only the first city in the state to pass such a measure. WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports. After three hours of discussion, Somerville's resolution passed last week on a 9-2 vote. It calls on the Biden administration and Congress to work toward a ceasefire. City Council President Ben Ewan Campen, who is Jewish, proposed the formal statement. We believe that a ceasefire is the first step that is necessary to stop the death, for the humanitarian aid to begin to flow in, for the hostages to be freed, for the international community to come together and to work towards a lasting peace. That is what this resolution is calling for. The Cambridge City Council is scheduled to act on a similar ceasefire resolution this evening. A previous proposal in November failed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Boston has announced its new Youth Poet Laureate. The city chose its first teen for the role in 2020. The third Boston Youth Poet Laureate was named at the Roxbury branch of the Boston Public Library on Saturday. WBUR's Ariel Gray has more. The Youth Poet Laureate works with the city's Poet Laureate to advance poetry in the city. 15-year-old Parker Vincent Alva was chosen out of 10 finalists. The Boston Latin student can't wait to get to work. But it's just such a great honor to be bestowed, and I'm just so excited to work with the city of Boston to really get the message across about literature and poetry and community and everything I want to do. It's just, it's just really exciting for me. During their two-year term, the Youth Poet Laureate also has the opportunity to publish a book of poetry. Boston started the Youth Poet Laureate program in 2020. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. Piping plovers are rebounding in Massachusetts. Officials say there are now 57 breeding pairs of the birds in Barnstable. That's a new record. The Massachusetts Audubon Society tells the Cape Cod Times there are more than 1,000 pairs statewide. Work to protect the plovers began in the 1980s after they were listed as a threatened species. It's 8.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. 
This is NPR. The Celtics play at home tonight against New Orleans. Tip-off happens at 7.30. Commuters should keep an eye out for slick spots caused by this morning's snow and rain. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has your forecast. Still tracking areas of snow, rain, and a little bit of mixed south air back edge pushing through west to east over the course of the morning to midday. Maybe a lingering snow shower after that into the afternoon. Additional snow coating to as much as an inch or two in spots and really variable conditions out there. Wet pavement in spots and totally snow covered in others. So just use caution. We're talking about temperatures in the 30s falling into the 20s tonight as colder air comes in. And we won't get out of the 20s to lower 30s for highs tomorrow. A little bit milder on Wednesday, Thursday back into the 40s. It's It's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The high school in Perry, Iowa, is reopening this week after a deadly shooting there earlier this month. A student shot five other students and three staff members before taking his own life. One student died that day, the school's principal 10 days later. There's still no confirmed motive, but classmates told the Associated Press that the attacker had been bullied since elementary school. Now, it got me wondering if there's a connection between bullying and school shootings. These tragedies often revive the debate around gun control, but what part does bullying play? Can a teen get pushed to such a dark place that it results in violence? Now, in a few minutes, we're going to ask a couple of experts about that. But first, I went to Sandy Spring Friends School in Maryland between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore to ask these questions. Students walk to and from buildings scattered throughout a tree-filled campus. In one of the newest buildings, seven high schoolers met me in a cozy glass-lined conference room. And a warning, some of what they had to say includes mentions of suicide. From like elementary school all the way until the end of middle school, I was bullied a lot. And that's why I'm just thankful every day that I'm in here in this community and I'm safe from that. That's Diego, who's 17. Most of the students either had similar experiences or knew someone who had been bullied. Here's 18-year-old Austin. I was bullied my entirety of when I was at my previous friend's school and just sort of feeling helpless feeling like even if you have people you can go to, feeling as if you can't go to them because there's like such shame. We're not using the students' last names because in the school's Quaker tradition, students and staff only go by their first names. Now for Austin, the bullying pushed him to a dark corner. It felt like I was empty. I had thoughts of suicide and had to go to an intensive outpatient program for the entirety of basically 10th grade. And it was heartbreaking because I'm like, I'm, I'm a kid. I should be able to live, like, feel good about myself. Many studies of school shootings have found that bullying plays a prominent role. A look at 41 different shootings by the National Threat Assessment Center, part of the Secret Service, found that the majority of attackers had experienced persistent bullying. And while Austin doesn't condone it... I definitely have an understanding of how if someone can be so close to wanting to hurt themselves, that that can easily be turned into being so frustrated, so tired of the behavior that they're getting from maybe the people bullying them or even just like the world. And I could understand, even if it's not acceptable, of how those feelings and those thoughts could lead to someone doing something as terrible as that. Greta, who's 16, says the cycle of pain is easy to track. 
I mean, it's a pretty common saying, um, hurt people hurt people. And I think it's really unfortunate that violence ever feels like an acceptable um, response to when somebody's hurt. I think it's becoming normalized more and more as school violence continues to happen and action continues to not be taken. Janan, also 16, thinks isolation is part of the problem. When you internalize your emotions and you don't tell anyone, you don't go to anybody, um, these emotions only build up in you. And at a certain point, it's like pouring water into a container. Eventually, it's all going to spill over and it's going to flood. As I was talking to these teens, I was imagining bullying the way I experienced it in high school. A kid said something mean or insulting. Or if I was really unlucky that day, I'd feel their fists somewhere on my body. All that still happens today, but Bryce, who's 15, brought up an added layer unique to children of the smartphone era that makes terrible things feel normal. Just looking at social media, people watch fight videos for fun, or when they see something happening, the first thing they do is, oh, I should record this, send it to the group chat later for a laugh. Why do you think we're there where a video of someone, a kid, a teenager getting abused or bullied is social media currency? That's a really hard question, I feel, that humans are already, in America specifically, just totally desensitized to violence because it's in our games. It's just like, oh, there's a school shooting. Oh, I heard about this other one last week. Oh, and this other one the month before, like it's a casual occurrence. Tiffany Evans is a school's dean of student life and knows exactly what Bryce is talking about. I think we want to make sure that students feel safe, but we're fighting a battle of social media where it's glorified to be someone who hurts someone else, who says something rude. And so we're here at school and they're with us and we're telling them to do the right things and this is our culture. But the social media platforms are allowing and supportive of those things. So it's really hard for us, right, as adults to provide consistency for students. The students and staff of Sandy Spring Friends School had all kinds of ideas for ways to stem bullying and to try to help someone that feels so damaged by it that they might feel that lashing out violently is their only option. Joel Gunsberg is the assistant head of the lower school, but for years was the school's counselor. You have to know your kid. I mean, you have to know that, like, this is where it becomes so important for teachers, administrators, counselors. You know who your student is, so why are they acting so different? communication, reaching out, looking for where there are a lack of mental health resources. All of these are part of the answer, Gunsberg says. But the student we heard from first, Diego, Diego might have hit on the one thing all of us can do better. We just have to be kinder to each other. That's all there is to it. Okay, that was our visit to Sandy Spring Friends School in Montgomery County, Maryland. Listening in and joining us now are two experts in this field. Dr. Allison Palini is an experienced school counselor. She's now the director of the school counseling program at Arkansas State University and has written about the link between school shootings and student mental health. And we also have with us Dr. Peter Langman, a psychologist who's consulted with the FBI and Department of Homeland Security about the motivations of attackers and has authored three books on the subject. Uh, Allison, let's start with you. Uh, what did you make of what some of the students had to say? Really, really powerful. I think that a lot of them touched upon that, you know, a lot of these people are in so much pain and they're lashing out in these very volatile ways, right? But there's a reason as to why. And we know that bullying specifically has a monumentally negative impact on students. Peter, anything that you heard from the students that stood out to you? The importance of school climate, school culture, can't be uh, emphasized enough because 
as I think it was Diego commented, you know, people just need to be kinder to each other. Allison, is there enough support out there for students who might be suffering from bullying so badly to the point where they're pushed to do something violent? Coming from a school counseling perspective, probably not. I can tell you that according to ASCA, the American School Counseling Association, the ratio of school counselors to students is supposed to be 250 to one. Is that happening? No. When I was a school counselor at a very high need school, I had a caseload of probably over 500 students and there was only one of me. Hmm. Peter, I mentioned how you've consulted with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security about the motivations of attackers. Is there a direct link or a line that can point to bullying to a school shooting? Certainly there have been school shooters who have been severely bullied. Many, however, have not been bullied And unfortunately, bullying is all too common. I've seen statistics that 70% or so of students experience peer harassment, but very, very few of them will commit a rampage attack. So it's hard to say there's a one-to-one connection. Bullying, like any other stressor, can increase the risk, but many other factors typically play into it. It could be academic struggles. It could be disciplinary actions at the school, an arrest in the community romantic rejections, and so on. So typically, when we look into the cases, even when bullying is present, it's not the only stressor. It may be very important, but typically there's other things going on as well. One last question for both of you. It was the money and the will to get behind one thing to help a high schooler who is being pushed into this kind of dark corner and to try and get them out without something horrible happening. What would you want that one thing to be? Allison, let's start with you on that. Definitely having the mental health resources, because I think especially since the pandemic, there are so many students who are struggling with whether it's something that's diagnosed or undiagnosed, and we don't know whether or not they're they're receiving treatment. I think that counselors, school counselors specifically, need to do more and to really address social-emotional learning. And I think a lot of these students would benefit, whether they're perpetrators of violence or victims, or just students in general, right? I think that having these life skills, so being able to regulate your emotions, resolve conflict, mindfulness, communication, and really expressing yourself rather than internalizing it, like a lot of the students had mentioned. If more schools focused more on preventative measures, right, and were more proactive rather than reactive, I think we would see strides. Peter, what about you? One thing we could focus on. My focus is violence prevention. And there's a growing trend for schools to have threat assessment teams. And the idea of threat assessment is identifying those students early before they hurt anybody and getting the services in need so they can get back on track and live their lives and be you know, successful, high-functioning members of our community. So I always want to make a plea for schools to have threat assessment teams, get them trained, know how to intervene effectively with a wide range of students who may be facing a wide range of crises and get them out of crisis and back on track. That's Dr. Peter Langman, psychologist and the author of three books on the motivations behind school shootings, and Dr. Allison Palini, director of the School Counseling Program at Arkansas State University. My thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's go.
If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, you can call or text 988. Just those numbers, nothing else. 988. And that gets you to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of efforts by House Republicans to impeach the Homeland Security chief. And Israel is accusing the main U.N. agency in Gaza of aiding Hamas. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the latest on what's known about the strikes on a base in Jordan that killed three U.S. soldiers and injured many more. U.S. officials are attributing the attack to Iranian-backed militias. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Hundreds of books have been removed from Texas schools and libraries in recent years. So one public school teacher created an underground library of banned titles. She tells like a select few of students who she feels might need a book to get them into reading. Hear more from this teacher and her students on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. There's a chance of a mix of snow and rain through mid-afternoon. It could bring an inch or two of snow in some spots. Otherwise cloudy and windy today with highs in the upper 30s. Tonight mostly cloudy and a low around 20 with a slight chance of more snow. Tomorrow mostly cloudy and a high only in the upper 20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. And from ECMC Foundation at ECMCFoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. People in Maine have a close relationship with the water. Maine's rivers once powered old mills, and many people now make their living on or near the ocean. Recent winter storms have demonstrated, though, that too much water is destructive. Maine Public Radio's Nicola Grisco reports. The waves gently lap the beach on this cold but bright January day. It's hard to believe that a few days ago, the view from David Plavin's windows was enough to send him packing. He left for a friend's house, beating out a storm that flooded his Camp Ellis neighborhood in Saco and set high tide records up and down the coast. You know, the waves will break over the top of my house and we get like a lot of splash over and you can see the force. I mean, if you look at this seawall here, I mean, this, this whole seawall is just totally caved in. The storm ripped siding from his home. His roof is damaged and his stone patio is destroyed. Flavin says he's experienced a handful of intense storms since he moved to this home seven years ago. But two whipped through coastal Maine within less than a week. 
it gets to be a little bit discouraging. And I think a lot of people down here are starting to feel that way. A few weeks earlier, heavy rain and snowmelt brought catastrophic flooding to three of Maine's large river systems. That storm left behind at least $20 million in damage to public infrastructure. That's not including what private home and business owners like Crystal Treadwell have lost. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven vehicles. The snowmobiles, the motorcycle, the golf cart. Treadwell runs a wedding venue on her property near Rumford. She recalls watching the water from the Androscoggin River rise and quickly flood her front yard. Eventually, the water reached her windows. The water wasn't receding, it was actually getting higher, and I said, it's time to go. So my stepson and his friend came with a boat. Treadwell, her husband, and three dogs were evacuated. Her tenants who live in the apartments upstairs also left safely. The three storms have served as a wake-up call for Maine. Hannah Pingree is a leader on the state's Climate Council, which has been helping communities plan for climate change. We thought we had time to make some of these changes, to raise up wharves, to think about, you know, what happens to homes and infrastructure that's right on the ocean or right near floodplains. And I think people now feel like, okay, we understand what we need to do, but we need to do it more quickly. Many of the Camp Ellis residents are looking for more action more quickly. The neighborhood is particularly vulnerable at the mouth of the Saco River. There's a plan to build a new stone structure to block the waves that have been altering the coastline for decades. But the federal government is a few years away from starting the work. And some residents worry that by then, it won't be enough. We can't wait till 2025 or 26, 27. It has to be 2024, like tomorrow. Oh, we're gone. Joe Keogh moved from rural Massachusetts to Camp Ellis four years ago. He says he wanted to recreate the summers he spent on the beach near Boston. And he fell in love with this house steps from the ocean. But now, Keo is dealing with a big mess. The storms wiped out much of the sand underneath his home. Jersey barriers serve as a makeshift seawall between the ocean and his house. I'm scared. I've got to be very honest with you. I'm very scared. In the aftermath of severe storms like these, scientists in Maine say communities can adapt by rebuilding homes or piers higher. They can avoid by not building new infrastructure in hazardous places. Or they can retreat, leaving vulnerable locations behind entirely. Maine officials say all options are on the table. For now, David Plavin says he'll repair the wooden seawall, but he won't redo the patio again. The relatively minor damage isn't enough to send him packing for good. No, I don't want to leave, but you know, you don't want to leave the, the rest of your life and wondering when the next one's coming. As for Joe Keogh, he's considering a few options to repair and protect his home. Even though the prospects are daunting, he says he wants to stay, too, as long as he can. For NPR News, I'm Nicola Grisco in Saco, Maine. With young Americans drinking less, more zero-proof or no-booze bars are popping up around the country. NPR's Iman Ma'ani reports from Los Angeles. What's billed as LA's first zero-proof cocktail bar recently opened in Chinatown. Stay seems like a typical bar, until you check out the drink list. Instead of alcohol, you'll find things like tequila alternative and non-alcoholic wine. If you are underage like us, this could be a good outlet to go to. I'm pregnant, so I thought it would be a great idea to go to get non-alcoholic drinks. Someone like me who also have health issues and I can't really drink alcohol, it's nice to like get that bar feeling. That's Natalie Fernandez, Maxine Mooster, and Caitlin Ryu. Only 62% of adults 34 and younger say they drink. 
That's down 10% from two decades ago, according to a Gallup report. And those who drink are doing so less frequently. It's definitely a growing trend in the U.S. Consumers are paying more attention to their health, more attention to health and wellness. That doesn't always mean that they stop drinking altogether, but a lot of times they are trying to moderate how much they drink. Dwayne Stanford is the editor and publisher of Beverage Digest. He says even though Gen Zers are drinking less, they still want to go to bars to socialize. They're looking for opportunities to still have fun, still do something a little more special when it comes to what they're drinking in social situations. Summer Phoenix and Stacy Mann say that's why they opened Stay. The zero-proof movement is this idea that you don't need alcohol to have a great time. I grew up in New York as a club kid, going to clubs and, you know, drinking at a young age. And so my experience was that we need that to have fun as young people. Despite a growing demand for mocktails, Stanford says booze bars are here to stay. Mocktails can cost just as much or even more than a regular cocktail. The price points are, I think, going to be one of the challenges. With any market like this, you're going to have those who figure out a way to still continue this as a niche. For now, Phoenix and Mann are confident the zero-proof movement will only keep growing. We're having a difficult time getting our shelves stocked. Mann says zero-proof spirit sellers are having a hard time keeping up with demand. Meanwhile, she's getting questions from others interested in opening zero-proof bars. Iman Ma'ani, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, a Republican-led committee has released a draft of two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It's 8.29. Join us on Thursday, February 8th at City Space for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Norris. She'll be talking about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden says the U.S. will respond to a deadly weekend drone strike in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members and injured more than 30 others. An Iranian-backed group is claiming responsibility for the attack near the Syrian border. The Pentagon says some of the injured suffered traumatic brain injuries. Iran's foreign ministry denies Tehran played any role in the drone strike. It targeted a barracks at a support base known as Tower 22. Testimony resumes today in Michigan in the trial of Jennifer Crumbly. She and her husband are facing criminal charges stemming from their son's deadly attack on his high school. Quinn Kleinfelter with member station WDET reports. Prosecutors accused Jennifer Crumbly and her husband of ignoring signs her son was troubled and instead buying him the gun he used to kill four classmates at Oxford High in November 2021. 
In court, computer crimes expert Edward Rogrowski testified the son texted a friend he was seeing things, but claimed his parents refused to take him to a doctor. Yeah, the hallucinations, that could have been warnings for seeing demons. Defense attorneys counter that Crumbly allegedly never saw the messages and had no idea her son was spiraling downward. Crumbly herself is expected to take the stand in the days ahead. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Regular service resumes today across the Green Line. That follows months of closures and slowdowns. Trains are running again between North Station and Kenmore Square. Service is also back on the B branch between Kenmore and Babcock and the E branch between Copley and Heath Street. The Green Line extension is returning to regular service after weeks of required repairs. The court fight between the state treasurer and the suspended chair of the Cannabis Control Commission starts a new round today. WBUR's Sharon Brody reports. Treasurer Deb Goldberg faces a deadline on responding to an appeal filed by Shannon O'Brien. Goldberg suspended O'Brien over allegations that O'Brien made racially insensitive remarks and that she mistreated the commission's former executive director. O'Brien denies the allegations. O'Brien is suing Goldberg, accusing the treasurer of unlawfully removing her. Last month, the Superior Court judge ruled that Goldberg could proceed with a meeting that could lead to O'Brien's dismissal. O'Brien then filed a petition seeking to have an appeal Appeals Court judge vacate the decision. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. Pioneering Massachusetts LGBTQ and women's rights advocate Anne McGuire has died. McGuire helped found the Greater Boston Lesbian and Gay Political Alliance. She managed the campaign for the first openly gay person elected to the state legislature. McGuire also hosted the radio show Gay Way on WBUR in the 1970s. McGuire died late last month. She was 80 years old. Tickets go on sale today for James Taylor's summer concerts at Tanglewood. The singer-songwriter is set to perform two shows at the Berkshires venue on July 3rd and 4th. The concerts celebrate Taylor's 50th anniversary with the storied venue. Taylor first performed at Tanglewood on July 1974. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. The Celtics will look for a win against the New Orleans Pelicans tonight. The game at the Garden starts at 7.30. A chance of snow and rain through mid-afternoon today, otherwise cloudy and windy with highs in the upper 30s. Tonight it falls to around 20 and remains mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. High temperatures will only be in the upper 20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston, you're WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. 
Here's what the United States does and does not want to do after an attack in the Middle East. The U.S. does want to respond to a drone attack that killed three U.S. soldiers. It does not want flare-ups in the Middle East to grow into a low-level regional war. The U.S. blames a group backed by Iran. Iran, in turn, has been supporting Hamas in its war against Israel. Pretty complicated, but NPR's Jane Araf has been following it all. From Jordan, which is the country where this attack took place, we are told. Hey there, Jane. Hi, Steve. Well, what exactly happened? Well, according to the Pentagon, an explosive drone struck a support base on the Jordanian side of its border with Syria, killing three service people and wounding at least 34 others. Mm. Eight of them were wounded seriously enough to be medevaced for treatment. And Steve, many of those injured sustained traumatic brain injuries. So the number of wounded might rise as personnel are evaluated. Iran, by the way, denies being involved in attacks on U.S. forces, saying that was between what it calls resistance groups, militias that have escalated attacks on the U.S. military since the war in Gaza began. And there certainly have been attacks in multiple countries in recent months by groups that the U.S. says are supported by Iran. But let me ask about this specific attack and the background. What are U.S. forces doing in Jordan? Well, the Pentagon said the base that was hit was a logistics support base. It's known as Tower 22 of the Jordanian Support Network. It said there were about 350 U.S. Army and Air Force personnel there. A Defense Department statement said they're supporting anti-ISIS operations. But that support base is just across from Al-Tenf, a U.S. base in Syria, which also monitors activity by Iran-backed groups. Hmm. So U.S. forces here, including special forces operators, maintain low-profile bases in Jordan and across the border in Syria, where they're partnering with local security forces in fighting ISIS. But here's an interesting wrinkle. Since the rise of ISIS in 2014, Kitab Hezbollah, the Iran-backed militia, has also operated in that border area. So we've got ISIS to look at, we've got Iran to look at in this area that I think Americans don't think about very much. And if it's low profile bases, we're kind of encouraged not to think about very much. But U.S. troops are there on both sides of that border. So how might the U.S. respond now that they've been attacked in this effective way? Well, President Biden has made clear that he blames Iran-backed groups, despite that denial, and he says the U.S. will retaliate. But that's the dilemma. Since the Gaza war started in October, there have been fears that this could flare into a wider regional war if Iran is brought into it. And that's potentially what we're looking at. Military analysts are expecting the U.S. to retaliate directly against Iranian forces in the region now. So far, Iran has not directly confronted the U.S. And Steve, we have to keep in mind that the U.S. already faces threats on several fronts sparked by the war in Gaza. There are attacks by Yemen's Houthis, attacks by Iran-backed militias. And this week, the U.S. began talks with Iraq on withdrawing all of their troops. And that, too, has an Iran link. Pressure from Iran-backed militias that are a key part of Iraqi security and politics. Jane, thanks for the insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. That's NPR's Jane Araf in Amman. There's a growing rift between President Biden and many black clergy members over the war in Gaza. Hundreds of black faith leaders representing many thousands of congregants are calling for a ceasefire, and they want the Biden administration to do the same. 
Reverend Leah Daughtry joins me now. She's the national presiding prelate of the House of the Lord Churches, a network of churches throughout the U.S. She was also CEO of the 2008 and 16 Democratic National Convention Committees. Uh, good morning, Reverend. Uh, the death toll in Gaza, now more than 26,000, that's according to the health ministry there. As a person of faith, how do you view this war? Well, good morning, and you're right, the death toll is really heartbreaking. Uh, and from the beginning, immediately after October 7th, I joined with colleagues to call for the return of the hostages, the ceasefire, bilateral ceasefire, humanitarian aid to flow freely to those who need it, and for an intensified peace process in the region uh, to address what we viewed as an escalating uh, war, an escalating conflict among the countries there. So what we see now is, of course, there was the horrific attack of October 7th. Families are still separated because the hostages are being held. But you have this growing death toll of people who are being killed by uh, the IDF, but also people who are being killed through starvation because they don't have food and water. We as faith leaders have to be concerned about the moral toll of this war and what our authority is and what our responsibility is in ensuring that all people are safe, are able to live their lives in freedom and security, and that all children are able to grow and to live a thriving life. Reverend, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. I, I've always known that there is a spiritual ah. kinship between some Christians and Israel. At the same time, many Black Americans see themselves in Palestinians. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, you know, we do have a kinship with the land of Israel because it is the land of the book. It's the land of our text. I just came from Israel in the spring taking a delegation of people to view the sites that connect with our faith. But the land that is written about in the Old Testament is very different from the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. And so we observe that difference. Uh, and we believe that we have to be on the side of the oppressed as God is. And when you see the disparate living circumstances and how they are being disproportionately impacted by this, we're 26,000, mostly women and children. We believe that our responsibility is to speak for them and to identify with them in the circumstances that they find themselves in at this moment. We believe that's where God would be. Is it difficult, though, sometimes, as you said, that's the land of the book, right? So is there a conflict within Christians, you think, of trying to understand how to support people who are suffering and then also support what they feel are the people of the book, you know, Israelites? Well, you know, I think what we're trying to do, of course, first of all, Christianity is not a monolith, so you're going to right. find diversities of opinion. However, even in the holy text, God takes a stand against rulers that are uh, that are unjust toward their people, and so God, as much as they are the as much as the Bible likes to call them God's special people, there still is um, a responsibility to speak for justice, and that is our moral right and moral responsibility in this moment. That's Reverend Leo Daughtry. Thank you very much uh, for taking the time with us. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks into data from the Federal Reserve that show that consumers are putting more purchases on credit cards. We'll hear whether that's a concern for the overall economy. Cloudy and windy today in the upper 30s. There's a chance of snow and rain through mid-afternoon. Temperatures fall to around 20 tonight and it'll be mostly cloudy. Skies stay mostly overcast tomorrow. It'll only be in the upper 20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, the Museum of African American History in Boston is teaming up with Norwood-based Showcase Cinemas for Black History Month. They plan to screen movies based on the lives of major figures Figures in Black history at theaters in Dedham and Randolph. The museum tells the Boston Business Journal its historian and residents will also lead discussions after some films. The screenings will take place through February. Craft Food Hall may soon be coming to the Alston-Brighton area. A notice filed with the city shows that the project is interested in moving into a space on Soldiers Field Road. It would include a bar, patio, and restaurants. Craft Food Hall also has locations in Lexington and Dorchester. Boston is one of the best cities in the world for travelers. That's according to a new ranking from Time Out. Boston was 43rd in its new list of best cities. The city's nightlife and history both contributed to the ranking. New York City was ranked the number one city in the world. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas faces two articles of impeachment from House Republicans who want to oust him over immigration enforcement. The lawmakers say Mayorkas is not enforcing laws at the border with Mexico. All this has a bipartisan deal to address the border crisis may come together in the Senate also this week. But former President Donald Trump is lobbying against that deal. I'd rather have no bill than a bad bill. This has dismayed some Republican lawmakers who were hoping for an immigration agreement. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is covering all this. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What is the specific allegation against Mayorkas? What did he supposedly do? Right. The House Republican resolution charges Mayorkas with two articles of impeachment. They say he willfully ignored the law and breached public trust. The top Democrat on the panel, Benny Thompson, says this is all about scoring political points. There's no evidence of any high crime or misdemeanor. 
The resolution singles Mayorkas out as responsible for the situation right now at the border. For example, Republicans say he implemented a system to parole migrants, release them after they file asylum claims. But this is a similar system that previous administrations have implemented for processing uh, migrants at the border. The committee is expected to pass this resolution uh, tomorrow and likely along party lines, and it could be a matter of days before the full House passes it. But if the Republican House passes any articles of impeachment, the Senate is not likely to convict or remove Mayorkas. Even some Senate Republicans say it's really the president, not the secretary, who's responsible for immigration policy. And senators from both parties were in the middle of negotiating an agreement on at least some immigration policies. What do they want? Right. This is not any kind of comprehensive immigration reform. It's really a narrow plan designed to reduce the record numbers of migrants we've seen crossing the southwest border. Chris Murphy, who's the top Democrat negotiating this plan, talked about the new power it would give the president. This bill will include an ability for the president to shut down the border in between the ports of entry when crossings reach catastrophically high levels, not permanently, but until we are able to be able to better process people who are crossing the border. The plan would also include work permits for migrants who are allowed to enter the U.S. and are waiting for their asylum cases to be heard. It tries to shorten the period for those court cases to as short as six months. Okay, this is something that Republicans want, at least some of them, that at least some Democrats want that could plausibly pass, but Donald Trump has turned against it, and some are obeying him. So what does that mean? There are some Republicans on the Hill, like House Speaker Mike Johnson, who say President Biden has the authority to shut down the border on his own. But the top Republican negotiator working on this border deal, Oklahoma Senator Jim Lankford, said yesterday on Fox that it was actually Republicans who insisted on linking border policy changes to a bill funding Ukraine. And Republicans shouldn't set that aside because it's an election year. We've got to do something now to be able to stop it and then to be able to put new tools that even the Trump administration was looking for when they were president, put those tools in place for every president from here on out. Republicans who support the border deal and money for Ukraine say this is the moment in divided government to actually get something done, but they admit former President Trump's opposition to a border deal means it's that much harder to get done. If they scuttle this border deal over politics, It means that the money for Ukraine probably won't get passed this year at all. Oh, my goodness. Very complicated. Deirdre, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. And Paris Deirdre Walsh. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on what's known about an attack on a base in Jordan that killed three American troops. President Biden is blaming Iranian-backed militants and vowing to respond. It's 849. Hundreds of books have been removed from Texas schools and libraries in recent years. So one public school teacher created an underground library of banned titles. She tells like a select few of students who she feels might need a book to get them into reading. Hear more from this teacher and her students on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Israeli leaders are accusing U.N. aid workers of participating in the October attacks by Hamas. Officials in Paris are preparing for a major protest by farmers seeking better pay and living conditions. And Illinois is the latest state to consider a petition to remove former President Donald Trump from the primary ballot. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. Upper 30s and overcast today, there's a chance of a mix of rain and snow through mid-afternoon. Mostly cloudy and low 20s tonight. Tomorrow, the clouds stick around and it'll only be in the upper 20s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. A judge says time's up for a giant real estate company in China in a decision being watched closely around the world. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. I'm David Brancaccio. A judge in Hong Kong has ordered a huge and indebted property development company to pull the plug and sell its assets. Evergrande had reportedly been working around the clock to make a deal with its creditors, according to multiple published reports. But this order to liquidate may not be Evergrande's final chapter. Here's the BBC's Katie Silver in Singapore. The question is whether or not a court in Hong Kong can have any jurisdiction over a company that's primarily based in China, the vast majority of its business is done in China, and uh, whilst they have a parent company in Hong Kong, for all intents and purposes, it's very much a mainland Chinese company. The interesting aspect on this, though, is that just today we've also heard about a new deal that's been reached between China's Supreme Court and Hong Kong's Department of Justice. Basically, both sides agreeing to mutually recognise and enforce judgments made in cases in both places. But according to the company, it says, for example, that it's a very separate arm and therefore they said that the decision was regrettable but that the company would be able to continue its operations in mainland China. Analysts will be watching to see if the judge's order today telling Evergrande to sell what it owns will have ripple effects through China's economy. There seemed to be this huge part of you know the China's growth story was the property boom. Now, in recent times, it seems like this bubble may well have popped. And when companies like Evergrande and later Country Garden really found themselves in hot water, we saw other companies uh, going bust as well, their suppliers, for example. What this shows today is that perhaps there's really an unwillingness from the side of Beijing to try and intervene to prop these companies up. Reporter Katie Silver in Singapore is with our newsroom partners, the BBC. Evergrande stock fell 21% in Hong Kong today. The key stock index in Shanghai fell nine-tenths of a percent. Now, that said, the Hang Seng stock index in Hong Kong rose eight-tenths percent. Markets here, little changed for the S&P futures with about a half hour before markets open formally. NASDAQ futures are up a tenth of a percent. The Federal Reserve meets on the economy and interest rates later this week with a briefing set for Wednesday. Bonds are up this morning with the 10-year interest rate down at one point, no, in fact, to 4.1 percent. 
Boeing MAX 9 airplanes are back in the air nearly a month after that side panel blew out during an Alaska Airlines flight. And at least one of Boeing's major airline customers is looking elsewhere for new planes. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Yeah, David, and United Airlines is that major customer. CEO Scout Kirby signaled the possibility of going elsewhere last week. And now Reuters says that Kirby has met with Airbus, Boeing's European rival, about putting in an order for its single-aisle jet, which competes with the MAX uh, plane. Not only that, but Bloomberg says Airbus has been going around to its customers to see if they can give up any of their reservations for future deliveries to try to make room for an order from United, because getting that order would be a huge coup. United is Boeing's biggest customer, David. Mm. Now, does this imply, Nova, that United is losing confidence in Boeing's safety practices or maybe something else? Uh, I think it has more to do with how long it's going to take Boeing to get planes delivered, especially MAX 10s. That's the biggest version of the MAX line. Uh, Now the FAA has declined Boeing's request to speed up production on the MAX line to try to catch up on its order backlog with all these safety scrutiny that's going around. And airlines were already looking at huge backlogs. Uh, Just to illustrate how desperate the situation is, Ryanair says any planes that any MAX 10s other airlines don't take, it will take at the right price, David. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. We learned last week the U.S. economy grew quite strongly October through December with consumers out there spending it up. Meanwhile, separate data from the Fed show more of that spending has been on credit cards. Marketplace's Justin Ho reports. Back in 2020 and 2021, credit card debt fell below its pre-pandemic level. Kathy Boschancic, chief economist at Nationwide, says even though credit card debt has been rising ever since, The recovery you saw in in credit card usage, at least through the end of 2022, was really just getting back to that previous trend. But Boschancic says at some point last year, credit card debt started moving beyond recovery mode, in large part because the excess savings people built up during the pandemic have largely been drowned down. And consumers needed to rely more on credit cards to be able to fund their purchases. Another reason credit card debt has been rising is because of the strong job market. That's because people with jobs feel comfortable spending money on their credit cards, says Lizanne Saunders, chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab, which is a marketplace underwriter. It's confidence in the labor market, whether it's their own jobs or just in general, the labor market. That said, credit card delinquency rates have been rising this year, according to the New York Federal Reserve, especially among people with lower incomes and multiple types of debt. When you add auto debt or student loan debt into the mix, it's just taking a much bigger bite out of whatever income is coming in in order to service that debt. Delinquency rates aren't necessarily a huge problem right now, says Jennifer Lee at BMO Capital Markets. That's because unemployment is still low and wages have continued to rise. As long as we continue to see that rising steadily, that will be good support for the overall, the broader American consumer. But credit card debt could become a bigger concern if the labor market starts to weaken, says Lizanne Saunders at Charles Schwab. If you start to see cracks there, I think you could connect the dots probably pretty quickly to, if not some sort of collapse in consumption or retail sales, maybe a little bit more frugality. 
And she says people might focus more on paying down their credit card debt instead of piling on more of it. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. It has been 15 years since U.S. law was changed to make it easier for employees to sue for pay discrimination. Today, on the anniversary of a landmark anti-pay discrimination act signed by then-President Obama, the Biden administration is making rules stricter governing federal workers, where an applicant's skill and experience counts and what people have been paid in the past will not. There are also proposed rules to extend this to federal contractors. I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. There's a chance of rain and snow through mid-afternoon today, otherwise overcast and windy. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. Those fall to the low 20s tonight, and it'll be mostly cloudy. There's a slight chance of a little more snow overnight. Still mostly cloudy tomorrow. It'll only be in the upper 20s. Wednesday, back to the upper 30s and partly sunny. It's 34 degrees in Boston. And the BBC NewsHour is coming up next. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.